team, but now since all my friends have phones, she's like, they can't text them because they all live like 20 minutes away, so I guess you can get a phone now if you buy it. Hello. I mean, well, speaking of phones, have you ever thought about like the, the time period in history that we live in, like all the stuff that we have? Have you ever thought back to like way long time ago and you're like, man, those poor people that didn't have phones, they had to like talk to each other or send letters. Like you'd send a text to your girlfriend or something and it would take three weeks to get there if it was fast kind of thing. It's like, man, like the, the age of history that we live in is kind of epic, but I actually have a question for you guys about that. What period of history would you like to live in? Parker says right now, and I agree. Okay. okay. <laughs> Victorian? Victorian. Where you wouldn't be allowed to wear pants. I know. I don't care. <laughs> she knows. She doesn't just, care. Oh. Just, just also, I have also, also, women have to take tapeworm pills. You had to take tapeworm pills? Yeah, there's a baby. <laughs> well, women did it. There's a baby um, tapeworm larva, and then you swallow it, and it eats your insides, so you're really skinny. They would eat yeah. tapeworms yeah. in yeah. order to yeah. lose yeah. weight. Yeah. And then Talk about a fad diet. Holy cow. And then either the 1950s or 20s. 1950s and 1920s. Roaring 20s, man, right before the Great Depression. Okay, so I don't know. What are like things that you'd like to have? What are historical figures that you'd like to have lived at the same time of? Like, have you ever thought about what it must have been like to live under Julius Caesar? Or like what it must have been like to live at the same time as Plato? No, because I'm not a <laughs> well, I am a nerd, so I whatever. Know, I don't know, like, ancient history or medieval history. I like medieval. Okay, post-medieval. I like modern. But, I mean, have you ever thought about, like, or maybe if you're a Bible person, you're like, oh, I would have liked to have lived at the same time as David and Goliath. Or you're like, oh, I would have liked to meet Moses. And it's like, man, I wonder, going back to those time periods, did those people know the history that they were making? And, like, for some of them, they did. Like... But I wonder, did little Julius Caesar as a 14-year-old boy know that thousands of years in the future, people were going to know his name? Yeah. Well, I mean, but even if you're a general, there are plenty of generals who live and die and no one cares about them. Like, Julius Caesar's name lives on for so long, and there are so many people like that. Like, think about Alexander the Great. Think about, you know, Charlemagne. People who really shaped history, and you kind of wonder, like, did they realize the time period in history that they were living in? Did they realize what they were going to be remembered for? And it's like, isn't that interesting to you? Like, living in that time period, would there have been this feeling of, like, oh, something's happening? But the thing is, for them, it was just normal. You know, the same way that we live, and we feel like, you know, this is just the time period that we live in. You go back there. And for them, that was just the time period that they lived in. But isn't there something mystical about that, about like knowing where you would fit in in history? Like knowing, if, knowing how people are going to remember your time period, knowing how people are going to remember your name. Like, isn't that an interesting thought? And personally, I especially think about that a lot because we actually are in a specific period of history that the Bible describes. Like in today, we're going to talk about our place in history. We're going to talk about where do we live? What's special and interesting about the time period that we're in? What history are we making? And originally this lesson was going to be scheduled to be the resurrection of Jesus, but we talked about that a couple Wednesdays ago and then also last week in the main service of the resurrection of Jesus. So we're actually going to talk about the ascension of Jesus. We're going to talk about what happened right after the resurrection. But 
it's going to be an extremely interesting opportunity to think about, okay, what is our place in history? And also, there's something very exciting about today. Today is the last day of a series that we've been doing for a bit over a year. So, today is the last day of our, like, storyline of the Bible series. We started in Genesis, and I've been giving you guys the main flows and main points of the Bible from Genesis through the Old Testament and now in the New Testament. And today we're going to be finishing the story. Today we're talking about the ascension and the return of Jesus. We're going to be starting in Acts and finishing in Revelation, and we're going to finish off the storyline of the Bible. And this is going to be a neat opportunity because after this, we're going to be starting different series. But this has been just a fun thing to be doing with you guys, like a fun study to be having. And some of you came in midway through it, some of you came in towards the end of it, and some of you were here for the very beginning. But it's just a neat thing, like thinking about the Bible in its context. But we're going to be talking about the ascension. We're going to be talking about what's special about the time period in history that we live in. And we're going to be doing that in Acts chapter 1 and Revelation chapter 22. But if you can open your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, that's where we're starting. So for context, picking up where we left off last week from main service, at this point, Jesus has been leading his disciples. Like the last time that we talked about Jesus, he was adolescent Jesus, you know, young Jesus with Mary and Joseph going in Jerusalem. And we talked about how Jesus is the example for teenagers. And then in the main service, we've been going through Matthew for the last like year and a half. So Acts chapter one. We've been going through Matthew for the last year and a half, so you've been learning a lot about Jesus' life and ministry, but now we finished off with Jesus dying. Jesus is, has died, he's been crucified, and he's risen from the dead. And last week we talked about all of the stuff, like the historical importance of Jesus rising from the, bed, the dead, and all of the theories that people you know, explain it away with. And today we're going to be talking more about what happens after he rose from the dead. So are you guys in Acts chapter 1? Perfect. I'm going to start reading. So Acts chapter one, verse one, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had commanded, had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And I'm actually going to stop there. We're going to read through verse 11, but I'm going to stop there because there's something extremely important that you guys need to understand about the Gospels and Acts. And that's that they're historical accounts. Luke is writing the book of Acts, and Luke was the physician of Paul. And Luke is writing the book of Acts to a guy he calls Theophilus. And that might have been the guy's actual name. That might have just been a title. But the idea is that Theophilus funded Luke writing the book of Luke as well as the book of Acts, which were basically like a documentary. Like the way that we make documentaries nowadays where we interview all the people that were involved in an event and we put together the narrative and we present it to people, that's what Luke was doing. Luke, under the supervision of Paul and under the guidance of the Spirit, he's going through all of the witnesses of Jesus' life and ministry and he's putting together the story in a single book so that that can be circulated and spread, but specifically so that Theophilus and other Greeks can know it. And I actually want to take a moment to talk to you guys about all four Gospels. 
Matthew. Matthew was the name of a disciple of Jesus, a tax collector, and he was an eyewitness of the life of Jesus. And Matthew is held to be the first gospel written. It was written between 50 AD and 70 AD, which is like 20, 30 years, within 20 to 30 years after Jesus died. And Matthew was written to Jews, and it's an eyewitness account. Someone who personally watched the life of Jesus wrote the book of Matthew. Mark was also written as early as 50 AD, but before 70 AD. And he's written by a guy named John Mark, which is a guy who appears in Acts. He was a close friend. He was a relative of Barnabas, and he was very close with the apostle Peter. So again, Mark is writing down Peter's eyewitness testimony of the life of Christ. It's another eyewitness account compiled by someone. And a lot of people will say that Mark was written first and that Matthew was written second. And while that's potentially possible, every source we have from the early centuries, like virtually every source we have from the early centuries claims that Matthew was written first and then Mark and then Luke and then John. So people nowadays, like if you look up the gospels and you're saying, you know, when were the gospels written? The first thing you get is a Wikipedia page talking about how none of them were written by eyewitnesses and they were written as late as 140 AD, which, you know, 110 years after Jesus died versus 20. And the reason why is people want to attack the validity of the Bible. And even though there's absolutely no basis for those claims, according to the people who lived at those times, like we have people who were alive at 130 AD and their accounts are that these were written at the time that they said that they were written by the people that have always been the accepted authors. But people want to change that because if these things are accurate and true, um, well, then people have to believe them and that's a problem. People don't want to. So... Moving on, Luke, which is the, also the author of Acts, Luke was, again, the physician of Paul. And we all know who the Apostle Paul is. And he wrote Luke and Acts as a compilation of eyewitness testimonies under the guidance and supervision of Paul and with the Holy Spirit. And it was written in the years 60 to 62 AD. And he was, again, writing for Theophilus. So after that, John was the latest of the Gospels, and it was written between 80 and 90 AD, which was at the end of John's life. And it was written after the first three to kind of like fill in the gaps is what most people will say. And the reason that I tell you this is that the Bible is reliable. Like we put the books of the Bible together and we reference the Bible as like a religious work. And a lot of people just view it as a single unit, but that's actually not how it was written. All four Gospels were written separately from one another with different people who witnessed the events, who compiled it, and who put it out there. And that is powerful evidence. Even if you don't believe that the Bible is inspired, even if you don't believe that it's the Word of God, the fact that you have four eyewitnesses and you have people like putting together these accounts, these are reliable documents. And the reason that's important is that you guys are going to hear a whole lot about why the Bible's just a hack job by a bunch of dudes who edited like history and wanted to make up their own religion. But that's actually not the case. So I just wanted to kind of do that as a side note. Like the Bible is reliable. The Bible is an historical eyewitness account of the things that actually happened written separately from one another, specifically the Gospels and Acts, written separately from one another and accurately describing the events that took place. Like, if you just acknowledge that and then you read them and you realize that, then all of a sudden the entire Bible falls into place. Because if these things are accurate accounts, then all of a sudden the things that Jesus said are really true. And if the things that Jesus said are really true, then you have the 
you know, inspiration of the entire Bible. So a lot reigns on the reliability of the four books of the new of the first four gospels and the book of Acts. But continuing, you know, these are historical accounts, but what's really special about the ascension of Jesus is that there's this massive shift in the life of a God follower. Something major is about to change. And in John 16, 7, Jesus says to his disciples, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Does anyone know who the helper is? <laughs> what is it? <laughs> the Holy Spirit. That's right. The helper is the Holy Spirit. The helper is one of the three members of the Trinity. And we've talked a lot about the Holy Spirit and the importance of the Holy Spirit in a Christian's life. But the first point is that you want to know your place in history. We right now are living in the age of the Holy Spirit. You know, we are right now living in the age of the Holy Spirit. And some people call this like the church age. But the reason that I'm calling it the age of the Holy Spirit is because of what we see in verse 5. It says, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And when you get baptized by the Holy Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit coming into you. That's the Holy Spirit possessing you. And as Christians, we live with the reality, and we talked about this in Ephesians chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 1, we live with the reality that the Spirit of God is in us. Literally. If you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit himself, God himself is in you. Helping you live life. Giving you the strength to understand the Bible. Giving you the strength to live for God. Giving you the ability to overcome temptation. And that's something that is a unique experience to Christians after the ascension. Like, if you go back to the Old Testament, having the Holy Spirit was not a common thing. For example, Saul, the king of Israel, he was given the Holy Spirit when he was anointed by Samuel, and then God took the Holy Spirit away from him. And then God gave it to David. Other examples of people who had the Holy Spirit. You have Samson who had the Holy Spirit. And you had people like Moses who had the Holy Spirit. But having the Holy Spirit was by no means a common occurrence. And now, if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. And if you have the Holy Spirit, you are a Christian. Like, that's major. Think about that. Like, think about the implications of that. That you have God himself in you giving you strength, giving you power, giving you the ability to live life. And that's why Jesus says, like, think about that. Have you ever thought about, man, I wish I could live at the same time as Jesus. Have any of you ever had the desire to like see Jesus teach? You know, maybe be there in person for the Sermon on the Mount or watch Jesus be crucified or watch him rise from the dead or watch him ascend. And yet, Jesus himself says, it's better for you if I'm not there because the Holy Spirit is coming. Like, think about that. Jesus says that we are better off for not having him. And I mean, in a sense, we have Jesus because like we're followers of Jesus. He's our friend. He's our, you know, our king. Like we have a relationship with Jesus, but Jesus isn't here right now. If you look around, you don't see Jesus. But who is here is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is specifically here to help us. And that's encouraging. That's awesome. And that's something that you should be excited about. 
Like, think about people who, they're so desperate to live in, like, the world of the Lord of the Rings. Or they're so desperate to live in, like, their favorite fictional novel. Or they really wish that they could be in their Hogwarts house. You know, the Gryffindorks and what otherwise. Um, <laughs> can you guess who the Gryffindor is? Um, but people are so desperate to live in these fictional worlds because they feel like the world that we're in is so boring. But if you look around, think about how wonderful this is. Think about the extraordinary way that like science works together and you can have things that like phones that let you FaceTime and you can put technology together and the world works in such a way with the amount of study and engineering that we have, we can fly, we can see orca we can hear orchestras in our ears, we can watch pe like things that are happening on the other side of the world on a random black box on our wall. And that's not even the most magical thing about the world that we live in. The most magical and extraordinary thing about the world that we live in is that God himself can live in people. And that is incredible. And I'm going to continue, but like, that is why it's so important that Jesus left. That's why it was so valuable that Jesus left. Because as soon as he left, the world changed. Like, Jesus did his work while he was here, and now the Holy Spirit is doing his. But if we continue, it says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Sumeria, all end and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. So Jesus rises into heaven alive, and he sits down at the right hand of God. And I'm actually going to read you some of the other accounts. Like One of the reasons I was talking to you about the other gospel accounts is that the ascension and the resurrection... Like, they're so important. They're covered in three of the four gospels, as well as in Acts... Well, the resurrection is covered in all three, but the ascension is covered in three of the four Gospels as well as in Acts. And the reason it's so important that you understand that the Bible is accurate and the Gospels and the Acts are reliable is that their reliability gives value to the account of the fact that Jesus ascended. Like, the resurrection and the ascension are some of the most historically validated like, events ever. There is more evidence that Jesus died, rose again, and ascended into heaven than there is evidence that George Washington existed. <laughs> have you ever thought about that? That we have the movements of history. We have the eyewitness accounts of hundreds of people. We have historians living at the same time. We have extra biblical sources by people like Josephus that verify the things that the Bible said. There is significantly more evidence that Jesus lived, died, and rose again than that George Washington existed. And that's not something that you're going to hear too often. And yet every single person wants to nitpick the Bible as much as they can because they can't stand the idea that Jesus could be real and that they could be beholden to him. People have an axe to grind with the Bible. And despite the fact that it has been the most attacked book in history, despite the fact that it has been the most well-validated and scrutinized book in history, you're going to have person after person after person talking about how it's just ridiculous. But you can have faith in the fact that Jesus did die, he did rise again, and he did ascend. And if you can't have faith in that, then there's a whole lot of other things that you can have significantly less faith in. 
Like there is no other book that holds up to as much scrutiny. That's something that's valuable to consider. Like, you know, yeah, actually for the sake of time, I'm not going to read the rest of these accounts. We've, we've talked about it. But just think about that. Like the Bible is reliable. The Bible is important. The Bible is powerful. And one of the things that we can be sure of is that we have the Holy Spirit. And that should be something that's so encouraging. And that's something that should motivate us to live our lives differently. Because what are we supposed to do now that we have the Holy Spirit? Well, I'm going to read it again. And, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What are we supposed to do now that Jesus has died, risen again, and ascended, and now that we have the Holy Spirit? What are we supposed to do? It's in the verse. It's in verse 8. Witness. Witness. That's right. We're supposed to be witnesses. In Matthew, we have the uh, what's called the Great Commission. Go therefore and um, make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. Like, in light of the fact that Jesus is who he says he is and has done the things that he said he will do, we're supposed to be evangelists. We're supposed to be missionaries. We're supposed to be actively pursuing that people would accept the gift that Jesus gives them because we can be sure that it's reliable, and we can be sure of the consequences that come if they don't. But, now we know kind of the beginning of where we are in our history, but if you turn to Revelation chapter 22, the last chapter of the Bible, if you want to turn there, we're going to talk about where it's going. You know, we're kind of in what's called the last days. We're in the end of history. We're in the last main section until the events of Revelation occur. And we've talked about in Acts, like... <laughs> So we talked about in Acts, like the beginning of the stage of history that we're in, and we're going to talk about what bookends it. We're going to talk about the beginning and end of the stages of history that we are in. Because we are in the age of the Holy Spirit, and we look forward to Jesus' return. Does not touch that. Says God, God more, more than we do. Oh, LOL. That was a mistake. Why? Sorry handout mistake. I, yeah. <laughs> so it's supposed to be, we look forward to Jesus' return. Sorry about that. Um, but you know, we're supposed to be living with the strength of the Holy Spirit. We're supposed to be evangelizing, but we're looking forward to something else that's coming next. In Revelation chapter 22, this is the end of the book of Revelation. This is also written by the apostle uh, John. And at the very end of all of the craziness that happens in the book of Revelation, at the very end of all of the judgment that just gets poured out on the earth, in the very end of everything that happens, of the world going to the absolute worst levels it could ever possibly go, chapter 22 happens. And this is the ultimate conclusion. And in verse 12, Jesus says... Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city uh, by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. 
I, Jesus, have sent my angels to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. And in that, it's just talking about in the very end of the world, Jesus is going to set things right. Right now, there's so much brokenness in the world. There's so much injustice. There's so much sin. You look around and people who have absolutely no business giving advice, running governments, being teachers, doing any of those things, you see them being you know, exalted to the highest positions. In the government, you see corruption, and you see that in every government you look at. In the societies of people, you see people just descending into further and further sin, disregarding God more and more and more, and you're able to have crazy situations that just shouldn't happen. And anyone who lives in the world that we live in now can just look around or even just look at their own experience and understand that this isn't right. This isn't how the world should be. And the thing that we need to understand is that when Jesus said, blessed are those who wash their robes, and he says that outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and all the other ones, he's talking about how those who have done rightly will be rewarded and those who have done evilly will be punished. Justice is going to happen. Justice will be served. Things will be set right. The world that we're in now is not what it should be, but it's going to be. You know, if you've ever heard the Billy Graham quote, guys, I've read the last chapter of scripture. It works out okay. Billy Graham, he was, uh, he was like the, he's this college evangelist. He's like, did like crusades for Christ. He saved, you know, he was in the instrumental in the salvation of thousands and thousands of people. Very famous um, Christian evangelist. You've got Jackson in the back talking about how he's got one foot in the grave. He's like, wow, this kid doesn't know Billy Graham. (laughs) But this is something that we look forward to. We talked in the First Corinthians first team like lesson about how we don't labor in this life because we want to suffer. We are laboring in this life because something better is coming. Like the world turns out okay. God fixes it. He fixes everything. And when we talk about in Acts chapter one, Jesus ascending into the clouds, if you go back to Acts chapter one, I'm not gonna make you turn there. I'm just gonna read the last couple verses in verses one to eleven. And, I, and uh, while we were gazing into heaven, this is after Jesus has just risen into heaven. Excuse me. Behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. Jesus is going to descend back down on the same hill that he rose from. And we're going to be with him in a world that's made right. A world without death, a world without sin, a world, a world without disease, a world without injustice, a world without brokenness. And that's something we get to look forward to. So where are you in history? You are in the most incredible, magical portion of history, not because you watch miracles that happen around you, but because if you are a Christian, a miracle has happened in you. 
You live in the only age in history where the Holy Spirit, God himself, actually indwells the followers of God. You live in the only age in history where God himself is empowering you. And as a result, you should be sharing the gospel with people. You should be thinking about that and trying to bring them the news of who Jesus is and what he did. But we get to look forward to Jesus' return. Jesus' return should not be a scary thing for us. It should be the best thing. We should be so excited for Jesus coming back, for the world being set right. And the period of history that we live in is after the ascension and before the return. We're in the last days. We're in the last period of history. We are towards the end of God's redemptive plan. And honestly, there's no other portion in history that I'd rather be in. And I don't know about you, but that's pretty encouraging to me. So with that, let's bow our head, close our eyes. Let's uh, pray it out. We'll do some small groups. Lord, thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus. Thank you for the fact that Jesus died for our sins, that Jesus suffered the suffering that we were meant to suffer, and that Jesus has given us a way to have a relationship with him and with you. Lord, thank you so much that as a result of the work that Jesus did, the Holy Spirit himself, God himself, the very breath and power of miracles is able to live in us. Lord, thank you for the incredible gift that that is. I pray that the Holy Spirit would strengthen us to serve you, to love you, and Lord, that we would be empowered by it to do the work that you have for us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to look forward to the return of Christ, that we would live with an eternal perspective, that we would understand that we are not living for this life, we are living for heaven, and that we would be so eager for Jesus to come back and to set this world right. That the idea of having a world where there is no injustice, there is no sin, there is no brokenness, where things actually work the way that they're supposed to, that that would be an attractive thing to us, not a scary one. Lord, help us to look forward to the future and to revel in the time that we're in because, Lord, we have the Spirit. And Lord, I pray that all of this would be fuel for our praise before you and fuel for our zeal for the gospel. And I pray these things in the name of our King Jesus Christ. I pray that he would come quickly. Amen.